Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to FIGP's podcast series, FIGP Focus 45. FIGP is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FIGP global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FIGP business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to FICP's webinar and podcast series, FICP Focus 45. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel and I'm a partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. I'm a registered patent agent in Canada and the United States. Today's conversation follows one that we had last year, where our president, Roberto Pistolesi, laid out some of the patents and the history covering different aspects of the game of golf. To continue this fascinating conversation, Roberto and Michael Klein, director of IP at Roger Cleveland Golf Company, will look not only at patents, but other forms of IP in the realm of golf and golf equipment. Adepts of the sport will be aware of the rules and regulations when playing the sport, but are you also aware of the very detailed rules and requirements surrounding the design of golf equipment? Michael is Director of IP, as I said, at Roger Cleveland, and has been with them for over 10 years. Michael was also patent counsel at the Coca-Cola Company and is the chairman of the Government Relations Arm of the United States Golf Manufacturers Council. Welcome to our conversation, Michael. It's a great to have you with us today. Thank you, Louis-Pierre. Yes, I wanted to thank uh, Louis-Pierre and also uh, Roberto for inviting me to join you this morning or afternoon or evening, depending on where you are. I wanted to first preface my conversation by advising that we're going to cover several high points of the golf industry uh, and, and its IP focus with the understanding that it's really going to be just a very slim snapshot of the total IP landscape. A presentation like this could literally cover days to be thorough in the IP landscape of golf clubs and golf balls and related products. So I can't really cover any everything, but I'm covering those aspects that I find interesting and hopefully you will as well. The other point I wanted to make is that I will be touching on several patents of my company for which I take no credit. These are patents that were obtained by others within my company. Um, I can speak to them generally, but I'm not an expert in the field. Uh, there are others here uh, who, who do that work on a more daily basis than I do, but I'm happy to answer any questions you might have about, about those patents. And then finally, 
I'm going to be very careful to present things that are interesting, including some things that relate to our competitors. What I can't do, or at least what I'll try not to do, is delve into anything confidential. So please forgive me if in response to some questions, I have to just defer and indicate that I can't really respond due to confidentiality issues. And I think that's, I mean, that's fair game and we understand that. But I think our viewers will be very interested to see perhaps the lens of someone who's working for a company, you know, managing the IP department, trying to tie in with the R&D group. How do you move forward and what are some of your priorities or concerns that you have as you're going about on your in your day-to-day responsibilities? Sure. I'm happy to oblige. Excellent. And so the presentation today, like Roberto's last year, is supported by some visual aids because in the world of patents, obviously a picture is worth a thousand words. And when we're talking about golf equipment, well, it's hard to really perfectly describe what we're talking about without showing it on the screen. And so we have a few slides that we're going to be showing as we go along. All right. So maybe we can advance to the first slide. Just briefly, I wanted to cover the types of patents that we see in the golf industry. And this slide depicts most of where the patents reside. Golf clubs and golf club heads, obviously. Golf balls, shafts and grips, head covers, golf shoes, fitting systems, which would be more method claims, and even some golf bags. What a lot of people don't uh, realize, unless you work in this business, is that the golf industry is extremely patent heavy. There are thousands of U.S. golf club patents and golf ball patents. In fact, there are more patents covering golf products than the patents that cover all other sports products combined, which really surprised me when I when I learned that. It's further surprising because I think most of you realize in the golf club arts, there really aren't that many moving parts with the exception of maybe some movable weights or some uh, loft adjusting mechanisms on the shaft. But for the most part, these patents cover static uh, physical features. So what's also shown here on this first slide is our new Strixon ZX5 driver and our Cleveland RTX wedge. And those are used by many players on tour including Hideki Matsuyama, Brooks Kepka, and Shane Lowry. And those same players use our Srixon Z-Star golf ball. The, uh, the golf ball patents, as I'm sure you realize, relate to things like chemical composition of the ball, perhaps the properties of the various layers of the ball, or maybe the dimple patterns and shapes. Maybe some of you are older and remember, as I do when I was uh, a boy, that golf balls were wound with uh, essentially rubber bands and had a lot of covers. You, you can't find those balls anymore on sale unless you go to a flea market, perhaps, or a, an antique store. The balls nowadays are multi-layer, two, three, four, and even in some cases, five layers. And their patents covering, covering uh, many of those. The, the golf bags that are shown here are just limited edition bags that my company is featuring for uh, several of the major tournaments going from left to right. They're themed for the Masters Tournament, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship Tournament. We also have one, although I don't have a picture of it, a bag for the PGA Championship, which starts tomorrow. Our company also has a distribution agreement with ASICS that allows us to be the exclusive distributor of ASICs golf shoes. And that's why that picture is shown there. Before we, we move on to the next slide, does your company also 
cover IP or patents related to the shoes themselves, or would that be uh, would that be done through ASICs? We don't currently have any patents that I'm aware of that cover the golf shoes. Not to say that couldn't happen if we came up with an idea that for, the way that would most likely come up is if one of our tour players came to us and said, I need this shoe to do this. And perhaps one of our tour representatives would come to our r department and ask us to solve that issue. To my knowledge, that has not happened yet, but it, it could possibly happen. Excellent. So most of the golf industry patents are related to golf club heads and balls, not, not the other auxiliary features that I was discussing in the last slide. As an example of that, a Cushnet, which makes the Titleist golf ball, has on their virtual marketing patent site over 40 patents covering just the Pro V1 golf ball, which is one of the best-selling golf balls currently around the world. Similarly, TaylorMade has a new driver. Well, despite the price, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> TaylorMade has a new driver called Stealth that launched a couple of years ago. And their virtual marketing site shows over 150 patents pertaining to that driver. And most of them are utilities, although there are some design patents covering that club as well. It's important to understand that advances in the golf arts are severely limited by the rules of golf as published by the USGA and the RNA governing bodies. So manufacturers attempt to design products that perform better, or at least can be advertised as performing better but stay within the rules. And in my view, that's one of the main patenting strategies for all manufacturers. How do you, how do you design a club that falls within the rules and doesn't have too much spring in the face because there are limits on how much spring the, the golf face, golf club face may have? How do you design a golf ball that performs well and perhaps has more spin or less spin depending on what you want? but doesn't violate the USGA rules on how far the ball may travel. And so that is, that is a challenge that golf club manufacturers face. And all of us try and do it. And that's evident from the patents. If you read the patents, you will often see um, you know, criticality issues claimed that are intended to demonstrate that this particular club results in less dispersion than a prior model, or this particular ball results in better wear properties, or perhaps more spin or less spin, as I was saying before. One of the interesting objectives and trends among manufacturers is to design products that can impart more confidence. Because as we all know, the, um, the most important uh, distance in golf is the six inches between the golfer's ears. If, if, you, if you lose focus when you're playing this game, you can fall apart pretty quickly. And there are some examples of that we'll talk about in a bit with, for example, alignment features on golf balls. Another one that I found interesting is that TaylorMade has some patents covering, believe it or not, a white driver head. And within the four corners of the patent description, they talk about how a driver head that's white can impart greater confidence because it appears visually larger to the user. We can debate whether or not that's true, but anyway, that's that's what they say. 
So, so how do you, I mean, how do you orient your R&D efforts in, in an environment that is, as you said, cluttered with quite a few patents, but also in a market that has essentially three, maybe four or five major manufacturers all trying to improve on the, the, the construction, the layers, the performance of the golf clubs and the golf balls. How, how do you manage to properly direct your, your, your IP strategy in that kind of an environment? Without revealing anything confidential, I'll just give you one example that I think will be obvious to pretty much everybody on the call. Every manufacturer has a virtual marking site. And so every manufacturer knows with some you know, reasonable confidence what patents cover what products. Not every manufacturer is, I would say, keeping their virtual marking site up to date as they should. I tend to believe that our virtual marking site is one of the best in the industry. And again, I take no credit for that. There, there are other professionals here in the company that manage that. If you look at a well-documented virtual marking site and you take a look at patents that are most significant to the products in issue, you can use those patents as a way to look for white space. And when you find that white space, you can run some tests around you know, features that design around those patents and determine how, how, how much they are successful in achieving similar results. That's just one example of what I believe pretty much everybody in our industry does. But as far as how do you, how do you stay within the rules, that's, that's a tougher one because every manufacturer could design products, golf balls that fly farther and drivers that avoid the dreaded slice maybe not avoid, but severely lessen its, uh, its likelihood. But again, the rules really constrain the manufacturers. And my, my belief is that the manufacturers are constantly bumping up as close to the rules as possible. And the reason I say that is if you, if you take a look at one of the characteristics that everyone must maintain is a driver face, for example, has to have a characteristic time which does not exceed a certain threshold. The characteristic time is essentially in doing a pendulum test against the face of that driver, uh, it measures how much time results in the impact of that pendulum against the driver face before it springs back. And if that, if that characteristic time is too long, that suggests that the, that the pendulum is, is, is dwelling longer on the face than perhaps it should, and, and therefore there's too much spring in that face. So, um, but there, there are limits to that requirement in the USGA. For example, they only test a certain place on the face, generally the face center. And so if your characteristic time outside of where they test exceeds that parameter, uh, that's, that's not a, a violation of the, uh, the USGA rule. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but that's just one example uh, oh, yeah. where manufacturers are are seen going, and, and and that's one of the trends that we see. Michael, I I have a, a question. I mean, with all these limits, is it frustrating being an inventor in the golf area? Because normally, I mean, I work with inventors all the times, and they always try to improve something. Here, you cannot improve as much as you would like. 
I would say I don't I don't see frustration from our inventors saying that these rules are too hard for us to deal with. I don't I don't hear that complaint or, or witness it. I think perhaps one frustration, and again, this this I think covers everyone in the industry, is with the governing bodies, especially when they start to roll back the rules and make them even more challenging, because that tends to upset the status quo. And an example of that, and again, I am I am not speaking out of turn. You can go on TaylorMade's website and you can see that they conducted a survey of golfers and asked questions about the USGA's uh, proposal to roll back the golf ball distance for tournament play. And if you look at that survey, you can see that that was pretty much roundly criticized by at least the survey participants that TaylorMade surveyed. And I, I suspect it was a reasonable sample. Thank you, Michael. We'll continue. And, and I have a, a question, and, and you and I have, have exchanged on this, but we'll, we'll keep that, the, the situation of, the, of that appeal and, and the patent for the end of our conversation. But maybe you, you want to go ahead and, and continue. And I think you wanted this slide up on the screen. Yes. What you're showing there is the TaylorMade twist face. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. It is a club that literally twists the face. And you can see a rendering of that in the lower right-hand corner of the face of the patent. The purpose for that is to help direct a golf ball that is not struck in the center of the face to fly more straight, more true. And this is one that I guess if I'm not intimately familiar with dealing with the USGA, but this one sort of surprised me that the USGA would permit that type of a deviation of the face just because it was, I think, pretty different from what was more or less standard. On a driver, you have something called bulge and roll. These are the curvatures of the face, both in the heel to toe direction and in the sole to crown direction. And those, those radii can be 10, 12, 13 inches. So when you view it with your naked eye, it looks relatively straight, but in fact, it's, it's a radius curvature. So what TaylorMade did was to twist those curvatures, and they show in, within the, the patent um, that that tended to result in a truer flight when the golf ball is struck away from the center. And so... Um, that's that's something that they promote fairly heavily. If you watch some of their TV commercials, they have a phrase they've coined called forgiveness <laughs> instead of forgiveness. <laughs> Just from a trademark perspective, I haven't checked to see if Twist Face has registered yet, but I would be very surprised if they don't get a descriptiveness rejection, at least initially. They'll try and overcome it, I'm sure, uh, with uh, claims of acquired distinctiveness. But with a, with a face that is twisted, it's hard to argue that twist face is not descriptive, in my view. I, I think the trademark practitioners listening to us would probably tend to agree with you on that one. But then you also need to have an examiner at the Patent and Trademark Office who understands something about, about golf. And that, that happens in the utility patent examination pool. Yeah. I don't think it happens so much. Yeah, exactly. In, I mean, the trademarks, yes, but in trademarks, maybe not. And so maybe, maybe you got a trademark. 
Although I would say that the trademark examiners do a very thorough job of just investigating the public literature to look for descriptive uses. I've seen that. What we're showing here is a putter face that has patents issued from my company. And putters get a fair amount of play in the patent category. And several manufacturers, including Cleveland Golf, have technologies that provide variable groove patterns, which you're seeing here. And once again, just like with the twist face for drivers, the intent of these variable groove patterns is to compensate for off-center hits. If you, uh, with a standard putter face, if you hit the ball in the center, it's going to roll true, pretty much straight in the, in the direct direction intended. But if you hit it on either the heel or the toe, it's likely to deviate by several degrees from a, a true path. So by putting these variable groove patterns in the face, it's possible to compensate for those off-center hits. And ideally to get the ball to go nearly at the same speed and distance, no matter where on the face it's struck. And yet you have to design these, these groove patterns to achieve the objective, which is to try to compensate for a ball that would be hit off-center and yet stay within the four corners of, of the rules of the USGA and, and the RNA as they are presently, right? Right. And as an example of that, the putter rules in terms of the face are in some ways a little more relaxed and in some ways a little stricter than the rules, for example, for drivers. Drivers have bulge and roll, like I was saying earlier which means that they're, they're curved. The, the putter face is not permitted to be curved. It's required to be planar. However, the putter face is allowed to have these kind of grooves. So, um, so some of the rules, frankly, feel a little bit arbitrary. As, as another example of that, many years, not many, but about 10 years ago, golfers were allowed to have putters that had a long shaft that you could anchor against your chest. And one of our tour players, Keegan Bradley, used that. There are other, you know, well-known tour players that used the anchoring putter. At one point, the, um, the USGA and RNA decided that's no longer permitted. I don't fully understand why, because anyone who wanted to use an anchored putter would have been allowed to do it. Some found it helpful. Some obviously didn't. Um, and so I, I've seen recently that there, there has been some chatter in the golf community to allow that, that type of putter to come back. I'd like to advance because we have a few more slides I'd like to cover. So if we can do that. The, the next slide I'm showing here is one of our products. Again, this is for what we call the Zipcore wedge. And it, uh, it has patented features, including <clears throat> a core which you see in blue, which is ceramic in this case. And the purpose of that is to uh, move discretionary mass, which we call it, to allow this, this core is a, uh, a lower density than the rest of the club head. So by removing the steel from this core area, that allows more density out more towards the toe of the club head and allows us to put the center of gravity of that club head closer to the center of the face. And that's, 
for for you know especially good golfers that's where they want the center of gravity to be this club is also known as a cavity back wedge that is a term that uh, refers to putting perimeter weighting around the outside perimeter of the golf club i don't have a a back view shown here but that perimeter weighting allows the moi to be increased and that also provides more forgiveness on off center hits I do want to cover this one in particular. Yes. I would like to talk a little bit about patent litigation in golf. Despite the golf industry being very patent heavy, there has been relatively few patent litigation battles among competitors over the last 10 years or so. And I think there are several reasons for that. One is, I think, the America Invents Act, which now allows all patents, not just golf patents, obviously, to undergo a scrutiny a re-examination process that statistically can be quite successful in invalidating patents. That's one reason. Um, another reason is that many of these patents cover discrete features in golf club heads, and the cost of litigation compared to the likely damages recovery for those discrete features, especially if the volume is low for that particular club, just wouldn't justify bringing the case in many in many instances. And so despite there being so many golf club patents, we just, again, have not seen that much litigation. A big case in our industry involved the Titleist Pro V1 golf ball, however, and that was accused of infringing several Callaway patents back in 2006. Again, this is pre-AIA. So Callaway sued Kushnet and accused them of infringing four of their patents. Kushnet uh, filed a request for examination of the four patents. And at trial, Kushnet, also known as Titleist, admitted infringement but denied that the patents were valid. The lower court entered, entered a permanent injunction against Titleist as a result of that trial, which Titleist appealed on the basis that the jury verdict was irreconcil irreconcilable. And in fact, it was irreconcilable because the jury held that one of the dependent claims of one of the patents was invalid, but that the broader independent claim was valid. So that's just not possible. The federal circuit vacated and remanded the case. And after a second jury trial, the jury found that all claims in issue were invalid as obvious. So about a year later, the parties announced a settlement. Uh, the terms were confidential, although they did indicate that no money changed hands and that each company stated they have specific rights to make golf clubs and golf balls under patents owned by the other company. So there was obviously a cross license. And I would posit that's another reason that you don't see a lot of litigation in this industry because I suspect, we don't know for certain, but we suspect there are a number of cross licenses, particularly among our larger competitors. One interesting aspect of this case is that Callaway sought to introduce the testimony of Phil Mickelson at trial that it would have discussed the benefits of the patented golf ball as determined by his personal play. The court refused to allow Mickelson's testimony on the basis that it would have had some minimal relevance, you know, to the, the point of uh, maybe unexpected results or a claim in the industry or some, some you know, commercial success, some non-obviousness evidence. 
but that that minimal relevance was outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice attributed to Mickelson's celebrity status. So I from, found that. I from found another that. point of view, I, I had uh, similar cases in Europe with other sport people, but I think that one issue is that uh, Phil Mickelson is not exactly representative of the common general knowledge. He's not the average player, at least from what we have seen in Augusta a few weeks ago. Absolutely correct. All right. So next slide, please. I did want to cover a couple of trademark issues. And this slide illustrates a lawsuit that my company brought against Callaway about 10 years ago. Just by way of background, our company name is Roger Cleveland Golf Company, Inc. It was founded by Roger Cleveland. He worked at our company from uh, 1979 or thereabouts until 1996 when the company was sold. And he left Cleveland Golf and went to work for Callaway and began working on wedges, designing wedges for Callaway. Even though he had been designing wedges for many years and they used his name in advertising, they never put his name on golf clubs until 2013. And I've shown you a picture here that comes from the complaint that we filed showing, maybe you can't see it clearly, but it says designed by Roger Cleveland. So we filed a uh, complaint and we asked for a preliminary injunction. Callaway, of course, filed a motion to dismiss, as I think all of you from the U.S. know. That's a pretty standard approach these days to almost any complaint. You file a motion to dismiss and and you uh, you hope that it that it works, and sometimes it does. It didn't work in this case for Callaway. They were arguing that this was a fair use, that it was descriptive use. They argued latches because we were aware that Roger Cleveland's name had been used in advertising for years. But the court denied Callaway's motion. Um, and based on the pleadings, there was insufficient evidence to support Callaway's latches claim. And also based on the pleadings, Callaway could not prove that it had used the mark in good faith. And that's a requirement of fair use. So the case settled a few months later. And while the terms of the settlement are confidential, I can tell you that uh, if you look at Callaway's website, you'll see that there are no longer any wedges being sold that include designed by Roger Cleveland on them. And, and is Mr. Cleveland still active with Callaway? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. But the, it's fascinating to see that there is, notwithstanding this fairly tight-knit community of manufacturers, there is movement between the companies of people who go, like Roger Cleveland clearly is one of the you know, one of the bigger names in, in golf, but I'm sure you also have engineers or R&D people who move from one company to the next. And it must be, it must be a challenge to maintain the trade secrets um, protection that these people would have been exposed to when they moved to another company. It's an interesting point. And it's also interesting because most of the golf club manufacturers are located in California. And that includes Titleist, Callaway, TaylorMade, Cobra, and our company. The only exception exceptions being Ping and PXG, which are located in Arizona. California, of course, is a state that does not permit non-compete agreements. And so there is a fair amount of movement back and forth between the companies, which, which you cannot prevent. But there is, a, there is also some concern that when that happens, 
for sure that trade secrets could be lost. Still on the trademarks topic, in addition to the use of standard character trademarks like Cleveland uh, Golf, U.S. trademark registration is potentially available for colors and color combinations and product configurations, as I think most of you know. About 20 years ago, my company purchased the Never Compromise putter brand. And some of those putters included a black, gray, black color scheme that's shown here in the trademark registration on the right. So we had um, several of those registrations, and there may have also been design patents. I just don't know. It was before my time. A few years ago, uh, we were required to, um, to renew those registrations, but we had stopped selling the Never Compromise brand, uh, at least in that color scheme. And so we didn't have evidence of, of use, continued use. So we had to let those registrations go abandoned. So more recently, we have filed some intent to use trademark applications as shown with the figure in the lower left-hand corner. I can't say for sure whether we're going to sell the Never Compromise brand in those color schemes, although uh, we have enough indication that we may, that I felt like we could file an intent to use application covering both a, a blade type putter as well as a mallet type putter. And as you can see, we're, we're claiming the, the black and the gray black color scheme. The shape of the putter is not claimed as evidenced by the, uh, the broken lines around the various contours of the putter. It'll be interesting to see if we can get this application allowed, sort of piggybacking on the abandoned registrations, or whether we're going to have to renew showing uh, under 2F acquired distinctiveness. Um, that's something I don't have experience uh, with, so it'll be interesting to see. And I think that highlights one of the one of the tricky areas that you have to navigate is that there is evolution in the in the design in the color schemes, and and so to to try to maintain valid registrations and yet trying to build on those new ones is is a bit of a of a, a very narrow path to to be walking on sometimes. Yes, thank you. This slide shows a picture of a, a golf ball that. Callaway sells, and it's covered by design patents. So I wanted to spend just a few moments talking about design patents in golf. In this case, the design patent covers these three colored stripes, and the claim includes two blue spaced apart parallel outer circles and a red circle between and parallel to the two blue circles. And what's interesting about this is that this particular feature is also covered by utility patents. And in the utility patents, Callaway claims that they've run tests and they show that this alignment feature really helps the eye to focus on the direction of travel of the golf ball. And in fact, they more or less equate this pattern to a similar pattern that you see on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier that's intended to allow the pilot to allow to uh, align his, his, his jet as he's coming in for a landing. So I found that, I found that very interesting. Uh, Callaway promotes this feature pretty heavily. And I believe there are even some tour players that, that use this particular golf ball. One of the things I noticed in the USGA rules is that the clubs themselves, and especially the putters, cannot be provided with alignment tools 
to to allow a player to better align the face of the club with the ball in the direction that they are hitting it, whereas markings on balls would be allowed. It, it, does that seem a little counterintuitive? There, there, you're correct. There are certain alignment tools that are not permitted on a putter, and the rules show some examples of that, and they look pretty silly, to be honest. <laughs> But actually, there are many putters that have alignment tools. So there are limits to there, what is allowed and what is not allowed. Correct. There, there are, uh, there is permitted to, it is permitted to have alignment lines on putters and you see that throughout the industry. Yeah, but so alignment lines are okay. Um, but alignment features that, you know, stick out are kind of ridiculous or not allowed. And I think this is just fascinating because when I read part of the rules, and I, I admit I did not read the entire USGA rules, I thought that was a probably a little bit much. But only, there is only a, 90 some pages long. That's right, yes. But there is a common thread in the document, which I thought was very interesting. And that is that the design of the equipment to play the game of golf must not be so that a player obtains an undue technological advantage. The rationale behind it is that the, the difference between an average player and a good player cannot lie in the equipment. It needs to lie in the skills of the player. That is my problem. <laughs> I found that interesting because I'm, I, I don't know, and I haven't looked at all the other sports. And clearly some of the other sports also have a set of some, some rules when it comes to designing equipment. But it was particularly obvious in golf. The way the game is played, there's a tradition, there's a history, there's a, a culture of golf that really does force a human being to stay within the six inches between the two ears in order to to be able to to play the game and not not be overly advantaged by a club or a or a twist of a face or any other device that would give them an advantage this is an important point and while i haven't seen this advertised within the USGA or the RNA my suspicion is that they realize that technical advantages often come with disadvantages as an example of that We talked previously about the cavity back wedge, and that certainly has advantages for off-center hits. It's, it's going to result in the ball flying more true. However, most of the really accomplished players on tour do not use cavity back clubs. Why? Because they don't have to worry about off-center hits as much. They are very precise. What they worry about is they want the ability to shape the ball. They want the ability to shape the direction that it, that it travels. You can see famous films of Tiger Woods shaping the shot of a, of a two iron. Or there's, there was an image of, um, from the masters, Bubba Watson shaped a, uh, a draw around a bunch of trees to win the masters. Mm, yeah, I remember it. And so, Players like me, we don't need any help shaping the ball. It, it's flying every which direction. <laughs> we, want to, we want to try and hit you know, straight as possible. Another example of that is just shafts. For the average player, 
graphite shafts are an advantage because they give you a faster club head speed, but they have disadvantages. Again, that the, the tour player on, on the, the pro player doesn't need, and he or she uses a steel shaft um, because again, they want they want that consistency that the graphite shaft may not permit. And they don't need extra club head speed. They have plenty of it. Right. So these are these are just some some points about technological advantage. It's quite relative. Interesting. So it's it's very it's fascinating. And and we did have a few questions that have come in on on the the QA. And and one is is you know, what would you say is the most interesting or unusual patent you've worked on during your time in the world of IP and golf? The most unusual patent, most interesting. The ball with the parachute that I that I have shown last year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For playing, for practicing in the garden. I think I you know that's a hard one to answer. There are so many. But during during COVID, everyone was afraid of touching anything. Remember? And golf was one of those few activities that people were willing to participate in, even even prior to vaccinations. And in fact, that contributed to a very successful boom in the golf industry over the past several years. However, you still had to touch the flagstick or touch the cup to get your ball out of the hole. And so I've, I've seen some interesting patents that uh, allow you to retrieve your ball from the hole simply by using your putter to pull the bottom of the cup up around the stick. That was interesting to me because not, not prohibited by the USGA rules, and yet it solved a perceived international problem to allow people to feel more comfortable playing the game. <clears throat> That's very interesting. And it sort of ties into the next question, which I'll present in two parts. One is, so what trends do you see in patents in golf moving forwards as technology evolves? And a second one is, as in very different industries, uh, you've, you have established companies that do significant R&D when it comes to the golf equipment, they're sophisticated players, they understand what's going on. How risky is it for a company like yours to all of a sudden see a patent pop out from an individual on a or a few features relating to a, a golf ball or a golf club and something like that? And all of a sudden, you're you're in a situation where you're like, oh, this person got really lucky and, and got some patent protection that might be problematic for us? How do you deal with something like that? And is that really a risk? I'll deal with the second question first. My, my belief is, based on what I've seen, I've, I've been involved in this business for 10 years, so I, I can't really speak in too much depth to what preceded my time here. But in the time I've been here, the risk of an independent inventor getting a patent on something that would cause a problem for us is pretty low. There is much more to golf technology than meets the eye, in my view. And it's people that are in this technology day in, day out as part of their career that are able to come up with the inventions that are not just patentable, but also meaningful to either improving the technology or improving the confidence level. So, that's that's my current view. Not to say it doesn't happen. Callaway purchased the two ball putter patents 
from an individual probably 20 years ago as an example of that. And in fact, they purchased this three ring design that I've, that I've shown on my last slide from an individual a number of years ago. It does, it does happen, but it's pretty rare. So as far as trends, I obviously, I do have a crystal ball on the credenza behind me, but I'm sorry to say it's not very useful. What I suspect is going, are going to be trends is the continued effort to take metal out of golf club drivers and woods and replace it with lighter materials that allows the movement of discretionary mass within the club head to more important locations. And in fact, Callaway is touting that in their new paradigm driver, that that's what they did. They have the first 360 degree non-metal golf club head. And that's one example. I believe you're going to see greater use of 3D printing as that becomes a method, not just for creating prototypes or samples, but also for as the speed of it increases, perhaps even manufacturing to, to perhaps one day avoid the process of, of um, you know, the foundries that, that currently exists. Well, I, I'm not an expert in that field, so I can't say for sure that that's going to happen. I don't know that it's commercially feasible, but perhaps someday it will be. And I believe you're going to continue to see a lot of new processes and methods that have no relation to the USGA and the RNA. They can't really regulate how we make our golf clubs. All they really regulate is the net result that comes out. And so the extent to which manufacturers can reduce cost, that's always an important thing. To the extent they can improve the look of a product, whether it's a golf club or a golf ball with a manufacturing technique, that's an important thing. One example of that is, I can't remember if it's TaylorMade or Callaway, or maybe it's both of them. They've got patents covering the placing of logos and branding all around the golf ball, 360 degrees, which uh, requires some technology to do that. And I think I, I just saw TaylorMade in honor of the, uh, the PGA tournament, which I believe is at Oak Hill, if I remember right. I think they're launching a promotional golf ball that has little acorns positioned all around the golf ball. And I think they have patents that cover the ability to do that. And, and perhaps those are printed with 3D printers. So one question, of course, you're with a, a company, a, a well-known company in this in this area. Who are the well-known people in the golf world that you've had the pleasure to play golf with? Well-known people in the golf world? I, I, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to play golf with well-known people. I've had a chance to meet a few a number of years ago as part of my role as the um, as a liaison for our government affairs that you mentioned earlier. Yes. I uh, visited Washington, D.C. on National Golf Day and had a chance to meet and walk around the entire day with Nancy Lopez, which was fascinating to me. And um, also got to meet and have lunch with Paige Sporanic, if any of you know her. She's an influencer on social media. And that, of course, was very interesting as well. But is she also 
a good player? She, I believe she's a good player. She has posted, so this is, I'm not speaking again out of turn, that she just didn't have the, the mental toughness that it takes mm-hmm. to be a tour player. Just couldn't get that right. So good quality, but not much consistent. And so one last question, because we are a little over time, but I think this one is is important. And, uh, and and if you don't want to answer it, I understand that as well. How much do you think that the IP that you've developed over the over the golf club equipment is an ingredient in the success of the various pros that are on the tour? I have I have certain views on that. And these are just my views. I, I would not attribute these to my company. And I'm just I'm just stating a fact. You have you have a large number of tour players that aren't limiting themselves to any particular brand in total. If in fact a certain manufacturer's golf ball was clearly superior to any other manufacturer's golf ball every tour player would be playing it in my view that's just my personal view the fact that they aren't demonstrates at least to me that the differences to those very skilled players are so minute as to be inconsequential that said you do see evidence of tour players switching back and forth between different golf ball brands and you see some cases where and i can't say who it is but there is a very high ranked player on tour that does not have a contract with us but plays some of our clubs and i think that is great evidence that's contrary to what i just said <laughs> that some players find some difference in manufacturers that is to their liking michael are, are we speaking of wedges i can't even say that I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Michael Klein, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on our on our talk today. Thank you so much for giving us this this view from the manufacturer in the world of golf. Roberto, um, thank you for bringing this topic to the forefront of the conversation. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I sense in your interest a part three to this, and maybe we can discuss how we can swing that. No pun intended. But <laughs> no pressure you, at all. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, thank you're you, Michael. Welcome. You're welcome. It was, my it was pleasure. really a pleasure meeting you. You're thank welcome. You very much. And we'll see <laughs> you soon on another FICB 45. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.